0: Hi there, I'm Clarence Waldron. Welcome back to Black Muse. But before we get started with tonight's guest, I really want to send a special thank you and and acknowledgement to Howard Sandifer and his wife, Darlene Sandifer. They are the founders of the Chicago West Community Music Center, and this whole video podcast is their idea. They said, let's get up close and personal with some of our favorite newsmakers. Tonight's guest is Nora Brooks Blakely, the daughter of the famed poet Gwendolyn Brooks. Gwendolyn Brooks was the first Black person ever to be awarded the Pulitzer Prize. Her career was outstanding. She received more than 70 honorary degrees. She taught at Columbia University, Roosevelt University, Chicago State. Oh my God, there are so many buildings named after her as well. But listen, I'm gonna stop and let Nora tell her mother's story. Nora?
1: Hi, how are you doing? I'm so glad to be here.
0: All right, so let's start at at the beginning. Tell us about Brooks Permissions, the, the company that you founded here in Chicago. How is that helping to keep Gwendolyn Brooks' legacy alive?
1: Brooks Permissions came into existence because it had to. Uh, when I was alive, when people asked her for licensing, sometimes her way of handling it was that she would write back on the letter that they sent and just say, okay, and put a fee, and then they would pay that fee. To this day, we are still getting copies of letters from people who say, Well, see, this is what she said, and she said we could do it for this, and, et cetera. So, that as a business model was just not going to work going forward. And so, we started Brooks Permissions. Uh, Cynthia Walls, who is the vice president, and I, and Carolyn Aguilar came in as the third leg of the triangle. And we started working on the project. I'm not going to try to give you the background of everybody that ever worked with Book Submissions. uh, But I will say, as I said, Carolyn Aguilar and also Uh, Nicole Shields, uh, who was instrumental in so much of what we are still doing to this day. So uh, we started basically as a licensing company because fundamentally people, most people don't understand about licensing. They think if they see a nice pretty quote in a book or a page or whatever, that they could just go ahead. And uh, take that line, take that phrase or page or poem and uh, use it for something that they wanted to use it for. And some people are shocked, shocked, I tell you, to realize that, no, there's intellectual property. If somebody created something, you need to get permission from them or whoever the owner of the copyright might be before you just go all wiggly wonk using it in anything that you choose so that's how we started and then we expanded and started doing other things not just to uh, license her work but to promote her work to promote the legacy for a period of time we had Aurora Performance Group which was a group of incredible actors and singers who would go around and do performances of poems of mamas that we had set to music, uh, and also weave in storyline using some of her poetry, and we had different scenarios in which that happened. Uh, we have, um, in uh, on the centennial in uh, 2017, which is already six years ago, which seems amazing. Um, We created a book and published it and called Seasons, a Gwendolyn Brooks Experience. And that book is available on on our website, GwendolynBrooks.net. And one of the things that I'm excited about is that the illustrator, uh, and designer of the cover uh, used a, an, an image that my uncle, Raymond Brooks, my mother's younger brother. And so that's the image he drew of wow. mama and gave it to her. Yeah. yeah, a long time ago, many, many decades ago. And, uh, and so she used that image and since it's seasons, then all of the seasons are reflected in my mother's okay. face. Okay. You know? The last thing I would share about Brooks Missions is that this is the 70th anniversary of her one novel, Maud Martha. And so this fall, we will be doing a special uh, program uh, on, uh, on celebrating, celebrating Maud Martha. Wow, that's, that's a lot, yeah. I know, that may be more than you ever needed to know about books of it. All right, all right,
0: well, that's but that's there
1: good.
0: It there it is. <laughs> there it is, there it is. So moving along here, this is the Black Muse podcast. Um, looking back, how did your mother and your father as well, because he was a very well-known poet, Henry Blakely, how did they inspire you that's a tough question.
1: Yeah, and so, in so many different ways. Um, on a professional level, I would say that, um, first of all, uh, Mamo is a meticulous writer. And so when you read her work, every capital letter in the middle of a line, every period, every dash, is something that she intended to be there. And each preposition uh, is there because it was supposed to be there. And uh, which makes me a little crazy sometimes when people just kind of like um, improvise, you know, not just my mother's work, but other people's work. It's like writers spend so much time trying to get this right that uh, you need to respect what was actually written on the page, tapped into the computer whatever. Um, She was at a time where this was not that, didn't happen that often. She was a professional woman who traveled. And I could look at that and see that my mother could go around the country and do uh, speeches and presentations. And I felt, oh, I could, you know, it, it was common to me it was something that of course i could do at a time where a lot of people women particularly wondered should i go to college um you know should i get a job you know whatever that just never occurred to me uh, the 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 blueprint had already been set out for me mm-hmm. um my father is definitely he was the uh entrepreneur and of uh, the person that inspired me to take risks when I decided I didn't want to teach full time anymore, um, although we are all teachers in some form or, or another, I had that background that he had started his own businesses, you know, and stuff. And I could I could look at that and go, oh, okay. That's a possibility. You don't have to take a job and have that job for 700 more years.
0: Moving on, your mother became the very first Black person to win the Pulitzer Prize back in 1950 for the book Annie Allen. I know that had to be an exciting moment for her. I want you to speak to that. And also, I'm going to ask you about the fact that the day she heard the news that she won the Pulitzer Prize, the lights were cut off. And she talked about that. Can you respond to that? It's so amazing.
1: Yes. Um, As I understand it, because 1950 was before I was born, not that much, but before I was born. Um, And she talks about this in, um, in an interview that she gave, which is, I don't remember the actual name of the interview, uh, oh it was when she was the uh the poetry consultant at the library of congress and it was just before they turned it into being the poet the national poet laureate so uh, she uh talks about that whole experience in that in that interview and, and she was thrilled uh because uh, this was her second book. I mean, there were no expectations of a Pulitzer. Uh, I'm sure you heard that phrase about, if you can see it, you can be it. Well, there was no one to see. There was no one before her that had uh, no black person that had achieved this. And so now she is the person that others can see and say, oh, I can, I can be that too. But um, I think that one of the things that makes uh, my mother's writing so authentic, I'm getting really tired of that word, uh, (laughs) is because she lived so many of the experiences that she talked about. She wasn't living in a penthouse on the 84th floor or something, Uh, she was living in a little house that cost $8,000 to buy. And a couple of times we almost lost that house uh, because of just not having the money. And at this point, they didn't have the money for the electric bill. And so uh, the lights were off. And so when people talked about coming over to interview her and everything, she was like, okay, come on. but. She didn't know what was going to happen, and okay. she said, "You know, she was as amazed as they were uh, when the lights came on, uh, when they plugged the cameras and stuff and uh, and stuff in." And to this day, there have been all kinds of specul There's been all kinds of speculation about how that happened. Who knew somebody who said something to somebody? Uh, but it, it, to my knowledge, there is no definitive answer. About that, it's just that we're going to take it as a miracle. The lights came on, and they were able to interview her, and you know, and and all of that. But those are the experiences that uh that 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 she lived. Right. So yes. Okay. What are your favorite books by your mother that
0: you that you've enjoyed reading?
1: It's like asking somebody about their favorite puppy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, their favorite, I know. Their favorite child. Um, that's their favorite. And people have often ask me about my favorite poem. And that's like, ah! Um, it changes. I would certainly have to say seasons because uh, Cynthia and I edited that book and we lovingly picked every page in there. And we went back to the original books and found exactly how she had typed the titles and and we did it exactly like that and uh, and stuff. So that's definitely one. Mm -hmm. And it's also the most recent collection of her work. Uh, Blacks because it's the most comprehensive collection of her work. Um, uh, tiger, The Tiger Who Wore White Gloves, a children's book, and that's probably not fair because that's um, that's about me, sort of. Uh, so. And, and, and Maud Martha because it's the only novel, and whenever I read Maud Martha, I start thinking about body parts that i would give up to be able to write like that wow wow
0: okay now the same question for your mother and i'm sure be, the answer would be the same did she have any favorites that she liked to recite you know any poems that she would love to rehearse and say just right anything like anything, anything like that at all
1: she had um She had certain poems she liked to recite. Um, one is um, the Paul Robeson poem. It's a tribute to Paul Robeson. And it's now become popular because people are quoting the last three lines. And I like to think that Brooks omissions had something to do with that because we talk about it and we read it every, you know, pretty much everywhere we go when we're doing presentations or when I'm doing uh, speaking engagements or whatever, that, uh, that that poem comes up a, a lot. And I, I hope for, as I've said, world domination by the Paul Robeson um uh, and to move We Real Cool over a little bit. There's a, there's a video on YouTube where you can hear my mother's voice as she's getting ready to read We Real Cool. And she talks about her feelings about it. She said that, you know, it's not that she doesn't like the poem, but that she would like it if uh, anthologists remembered that she had written more than just that one poem. And uh, so the last three lines of Paul Robeson are, We are each other's harvest. We are each other's business. We are each other's magnitude and bond. And I think at a time like now, you know, the idea of looking at ourselves and each other in that mirror is just so critically, critically important. So I think that's, that's a poem uh, as far as her favorite books, we never had that conversation. We never had a conversation where she said, well, you know, Nora, you know, something that I just really love is, um, is, is you know, my favorite book is this. But I know the books that I watched her uh, work really, really hard on. And one was um, In the Mecca, and uh, in the Mecca is also in Blacks. And she did a story about the Mecca building, which used to be on 35th Street, right where uh, Illinois Institute of Technology currently exists. And so she wrote uh, about uh, all the different little uh, apartments that have been turned into kitchenettes. And usually there was like a bathroom or two at like the end of the hall. Uh, you didn't have your own. You didn't have your own bathroom. And so she wrote about all these different, created all these different characters that were like some of the people that she met in uh, in the Mecca building. She didn't live there, but uh, she had had to do some work at the time that required her to go in and out of the building and go to different as as a very young woman. And that takes up in book form, that takes up almost the entire book. So it was a book length poem with a few additional poems called After Mecca, After It. And she worked so hard um, on that. The other one that comes to mind uh, was published by Third World Press Foundation uh, after her death, but she had written everything in it and had basically uh, handed it over to uh, Third World Press before she passed. And the one piece that she did uh, was a piece that Ebony Magazine had asked her to do years before, and it's called In Montgomery. And uh, that's the, that's the book. And so... Okay. Yeah. And so in Montgomery, uh, Ebony asked her and the Pulitzer Prize winning photographer Monita Sleek to go and, uh, and go to Montgomery, Alabama uh, decades later and do a piece on just what the changes and the not changes were. And... She decided to do it in an iambic pentameter, and so that is five beats of da 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 da. And um, and so by the time she finished that poem, all of us were talking in iambic pentameter. Mm -hmm. Everything we said almost ended up in, uh, would end in being in that pattern, you know, as, so, <laughs> so, because it was just locked into our brains at that point, uh, and it's a phenomenal, it's a phenomenal poem, you know, so um, so those are the kinds of things I knew that she had, as hard as she worked on anything she did, that uh, that she really toiled, especially on those. Okay.
0: All right. So now for, for some of our young viewers who are, are tuning in, can you recommend a book that that they can sort of become familiar with the name Gwendolyn Brooks, like an essential book or essential poem?
1: Poems, obviously, I would say Paul Robeson. I would say We Real Cool Because... <laughs> It is. It is a great poem. It's amazing what she can put into eight. What she has put into eight lines. Um, but right. so I would say that. Um, as a uh, as a book, I would probably say one of the books. I would probably say, and I'm not just tooting my own horn about this. Um, is is seasons because. We also illustrated it, but we didn't illustrate it like a children's book because it's not. Um, but but the artist who did the cover, Jan Spivey Gilchrist, who is yes. an award-winning yes. yeah, international known artist, uh, did different illustrations within mm-hmm. it. And they're not on every page. And some are small and some uh, take over the page. <clears throat> but we uh, designed the book to be for anywhere from about ages 12 through adult. So we wanted young, older young people to be able to read it. And we wanted it to be accessible to them and also accessible to people who don't just immediately go, I know what I wanna do today. I wanna read a book of poetry. So um, we wanted it to be accessible to people who weren't always the the standard poetry lovers, well, so I would say that, and also, hmm, a couple of pieces, uh, so that you get a particular understanding of of the the process, the path that she took, would be like Chicago Defender sends a man to Little Rock, uh, and Kitchenette Building. Because both of those are from her earlier, much earlier works, and uh, when she was still rhyming. And in the 60s, she changed and said that she didn't think it was a rhyme time. And she, to all intents and purposes, every once in a while you'll see a little rhyme that pops up someplace, but fundamentally she stopped writing, uh, rhyming. And last but not least, I like her poem Jane Adams" because it's about Jane Adams, but it's also, to me, an accidental autobiography of her. There's a line in there uh, that says, I will tell you uh, something that uh, giants, I'm paraphrasing, giants wouldn't want you to know, giants look in mirrors and see almost nothing at all. And, um, and I, I, I think it's just an incredible poem. So those are a few, you know.
0: Okay, cool. Now you're an accomplished writer and playwright yourself and you founded Chicago Chips Theater Company. Um, do you miss it today that is no longer there after 29 years? You sort of miss the whole theater world like that?
1: Well, we kind of, Brooks and keeps sticking its toe. In the theater, in the theater waters, from from time to time, uh, and there's a play about Mama that I wrote um, uh, for Chocolate Chips Theater Company that I at some point want to uh, to to bring back. It's called A Day in Bronzeville, and what I did was I wrote a story about these people. This I wrote this play about these people living uh, in Brownsville starting from six o'clock in the morning and going to six o'clock the next morning. And so we see all the things that happen, people at work, people, um, you know, uh, kids at school, uh, people uh, in the nighttime, some good, some bad, uh, uh, and all of that. But the, the dialogue is only lines from my mother's poetry. From my mother's work. There's absolutely not a single word in there that was not included. And so there are phrases that people use to talk to each other. And we also took some of mama's poems and set them to music. And so it is a play with music. And at some point I do want to do that, um, to to bring that back. Other than that, um, I miss the, it was adults performing for for children, and I started it uh, because uh, when we were going out before Chocolate Chip started, when we were going out, we would find um, we would we would uh, have places where we would do shows, um, and the people would uh, sometimes the teachers would send pictures uh, back. That the kids had drawn of a, of a, this group on stage. And there were all these empty circles, you know, with faces, but if the paper was white, then the faces were white too. And, mm-hmm. um, and so when people asked me why I started Chocolate Chips, it was to color the faces in, to give kids an opportunity to see Black performers at a time that there were not a lot of Black. Groups for young people, um, black performers on stage telling stories about uh, historical things like which west is which, which looks at the cowboys and settlers uh, in the in the old west, um, to Kingdom of Gold, which looks at uh, a society, uh, a thriller of, of a society uh, in about seventeenth century Africa, just different kinds of pieces that we could do. And one of the pieces uh, was called Moyanda and the Golden Heart. It was a musical. And just a couple of years ago, I took the base story of that and turned it into my first children's book, which is Uh, that. Yes, 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 yes. And what's amazing about that is that the incredible illustrator, uh, Bryant Smith, um, was our graphic design person for Chips at the time when we did the musical. And this is almost exactly the flyer that he did for the musical. And um, when he asked me what I wanted, I said, I want it to look like the cover of a children's book. And so he did it. It is, it It is. (laughs) <laughs> it's a Kwanzaa origin story. Of uh, we know that the Kwanzaa was actually created by Dr. Karenga in the 1960s, but what if, what if, hundreds of years ago, things happened with this young boy who went on a quest that laid the groundwork for the principles that we celebrate now to this day, and that is the premise of Moyanda and the Golden Heart.
0: That sounds good. That sounds
1: good. And it's available on my website, info at flyingcolorsunlimited.com. It's also available on Amazon. Got it, got
0: it. All right, well, we are finally at the end of our conversation. The time went by so quickly. Is there anything else you would like to share? I mean, we're so happy that you're here. We're so happy to talk to you. Really thrilled. Anything else on your mind today?
1: I guess the only other thing that comes to me immediately is that it is that I think that everything we've talked about um, goes back to something that I am now passionate about doing in some of the speeches that I do and stuff. And it's about generational creativity, uh, about how people often talk about generational wealth, but generational creativity is a vital component of that and we can look at it specifically in how my parents impacted me and how I write and do what I do because of who they were but um in general also if we are not taking our folklore and our major writers and passing that down I feel that anybody who does not help kids get excited about reading and writing, I think that's a form to me of child abuse. And so I think that the whole generational creativity of making sure that our creations are passed on to inspire younger people to continue spreading and sharing that wealth is uh, is crucial. Okay,
0: all right. Very well said. Thank you again for your time. Thank Appreciate you. It. Yeah, this is nice.